Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 14. Several chapters ago, Jesus entered Jerusalem. He had conflict with the scribes, the Pharisees, the various religious leaders. And then he went off to talk to his disciples, and the religious leaders went off to talk among themselves. So the last two lessons was Jesus talking with his disciples. And uh, we spent the last two weeks talking about the second coming. Now, I did forget the story I wanted to tell last week. Uh, We were reading an article about the difficulties translating sermons. And this guy was going to give a sermon in Africa, and he asked the translator, I mean, he had done the translation, he asked the translator to review it. And he said, don't talk about the last days. And the pastor said, why? And he said, the last days are Friday. (laughs) In their culture, if you say the last days, it's so around our house now, the last days are Friday. (laughs) So the disciples have been talking and the religious leaders have been talking. And that brings us to chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. What we're going to see in today's lesson is A group of people, individuals, responding to Jesus. And we had discussions at the very beginning of Mark, if you remember, that Mark is a very action-oriented. This is what was happening. You know, one story after the next story after the next story. And sometimes it's left to us to try to figure out why they were doing these things. Why did the scribes and religious leaders decide that they had to kill Jesus? It wasn't just a matter of humiliating him or pushing him aside. They had to get rid of him. Their religious position, power, and authority in the society were being questioned. In fact, it was being overturned. Do you remember back in chapter 12, when they were having this interaction with Jesus, you got the impression that there was this crowd watching. And at some point, the crowd was rooting for Jesus. It said that they came to hear him speak because they just loved to hear him speak. And this threatened the power and the authority of the religious leaders. These are the religious leaders who should have been prepared for the Messiah. They should have been prepared because they should have known the scripture and they should have known that this wasn't just some ordinary teacher showing up. But notice that they are still scared of the people. Do you remember back in the discussion about they come to Jesus and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? And he asked them a question. John the Baptist, by what authority did he do what he did? And they thought among themselves and they go, uh, if we say that it came from God, he's going to say, why didn't you follow it? If we say it came from the devil, 
then the people are going to be ticked off at us because they think he's a prophet. So they refuse to tell Jesus. The scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders are very aware of the pulse of the people. And they know that they can't just grab Jesus off the street in the middle of the day and cart him off. Or they would be a riot. There would be a riot. So we have, if you remember in all these groups of religious leaders, this group who are known as the Herodians. They're kind of the Jews that are in with the Romans. And they only have one task in their mind, and that is to keep the peace. Because if we allow a riot to pop up, the Romans are just going to run their soldiers into town and take care of all of it. And we don't want that. So they decide, because of their fear of the people, we can't do this during the daytime. We need to do it at night. Now... We're going to see the whole thing with Judas, at least the start of it. The end of it will be in the next lesson. And you kind of wonder, why did they need Judas? You know, we're so used to surveillance cameras and knowing where everybody is and tracking people. And here's a photograph of the guy we're looking for. Go find him. And that kind of thing that we don't understand this society They needed to know, if they were going to arrest Jesus at night when the crowd, they needed somebody who say, this is the guy. Because if they got the wrong guy, what's going to happen? The right guy is going to go get the crowd. They're going to overthrow the rulers. The Romans are going to come in, and that would be really bad. So they start trying to figure out how we are going to arrest him quietly. On to the next story. And when he, Jesus, and while he was at Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, I actually like that phrase. Okay? How would you like to go through life known as Simon the leper? Why did they call him Simon the leper? Because most of his life he had leprosy. And Since he had leprosy, he could not, well, he couldn't enter company. I mean, he had to be an outcast because they were very concerned about infectious diseases. Okay, so he was known as Simon the leper. But guess what? Jesus healed him. So why isn't he now known as Simon the former leper? or the healed leper, or something. But you know what? This is speculation on my part. I think Simon, the leper, wanted people to know what Jesus had done for him. I mean, you and I could walk around, you know, Simon the saved person, But Simon wanted them to know that he was Simon the sinner saved by grace. Simon the leper, that was just the name that had been given to him. And he kept it, I believe, once again, this is speculation on my part, because he wanted to remind people what God had done for him 
through the person of Jesus Christ. So, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask full of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over her, his head. Why did she do that? Remember? Why did the Pharisees do what they did? Why is she doing this? Why are the people going to complain about it? Why? Why did she do this? First off, who is this person? And I'll say right up front, there actually is some discussion about who this is. The other Gospels identify her as Mary, which helps, except for the fact there's lots of Marys in the, uh, the New Testament. Given the fact that she is from Bethany, she is generally referred to as Mary of Bethany, who would be Martha and Lazarus's sister. So that's probably who she is. There are those who want to say she's Mary Magdalene or some other Mary, but we'll go with that for the moment. So why does she take this valuable ointment, perfume, and pour it over Jesus' head. Come on, wake up. Pardon? He was a king. And that's what Jesus is going to talk about, the fact that he's about to be buried, but... I'm not sure she would recognize that. That's what he's going to say it's for, because I think he's really only the one who's on board with this. He's about to die. He's told them multiple times, but I'm not sure they're in on it. Why did she do it? She did it out of love, and she did it out of gratitude for what Jesus had done for her. Once again, here's the image that I have. She's at this dinner at Simon the leper's house. They're talking about old times. They're talking about everything that Jesus has done. They're listening to him speak. It is a great event. And her joy and her love are just swelling up in her, and she has to do something. This week, I was reading through the book of Matthew, really not in preparation for this. I was just reading through the book of Matthew. And there are two very short parables, like one verse each. And there's the one about the man who finds the pearl. And there's the one about the man who finds something buried in the field. And it says, both of them, with great joy sell everything they have to buy the field or the pearl. And I was just interested in that phrase, with great joy. Because I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I can understand reluctantly selling everything you have to buy the pearl of great price. I understand that. We understand this to be salvation. I understand putting value on it and reluctantly selling everything to buy it. You know, what's the least amount I have to cash in in order to buy the product? 
That's the way our minds think, right? No! With great joy, they sold everything they had to purchase that which was more valuable. Mary, the lady in this story, with great joy, took that which was most valuable to her, and she poured it over Jesus' head in order to give honor, glory to him because of what he had done for her. And you would think that was a great thing, right? And there's always guys, guys causing trouble. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, have you ever said anything to yourself indignantly? <laughs> I'm above that. Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. That's like a year's wages. A year's worth of your wages were just wasted being poured over the head of Jesus. Couldn't you just go buy a bottle of the cheap stuff? Sell the good stuff? Could have been sold and given to the poor. Aren't they really religious? And they scolded her. Okay? We don't know the exact, you know, where everybody's standing at this point. But it does say they were uh, saying to themselves, you know, it's like you're muttering under your breath or you're just thinking real hard, you know. How'd she do this? And then they start chastising her. I suspect, I don't know, that they kind of waited her for, for her to get away from Jesus and they started chastising her. And Jesus turns around and says, leave that poor woman alone. Well, that's a close to what it said. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? That's just a good general question. Dealing with grandkids, you know? Why do you trouble them? I don't know. We went to Nacogdoches yesterday, okay, to see our, grand, our daughter. And we go to a, custard, a frozen custard place. And the lady says, I got your wife's order and your granddaughter's order. What is your order? And I said, that's my daughter. Oh, sorry. <sighs> oh, well. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them but you will not always have me. She has anointed what she, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. You do know, right, that the Bible spends a lot of time talking about taking care of the poor. There is nothing in this passage 
saying you shouldn't take care of the poor. Even the fact that he says you will always have the poor does not mean that you therefore should ignore the poor. Because there's too many other scriptures dealing with helping the poor. But what he is saying is we are at a unique position here. I am not going to be on the scene for much longer. I still don't think they've totally grasped that, but he's told them. I am not going to be on the scene. And she, out of love and gratitude, has done what she could. She was probably anointing him as king or just anointing him to demonstrate her sacrifice to Jesus because of what Jesus had done. But Jesus understands this more than she understands this, that he is being anointed because he is about to be buried. You know, right, at the time they would wrap the body and they put all kinds of spices in there. Why? Because dead bodies stink. And they would wrap all these spices in there and try to keep the smell down. And Jesus says, this is what she's doing. This is what she is doing for me. Now, anytime you want to, you can go help the poor. And I would say, you ought to go help the poor. But leave this poor woman alone. Now, why? Because she has done this for me. Now, let me let you in on a little secret. How do we, today, do it for Jesus? He actually makes this very clear. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And they looked at him and said, this is the end times, remember? They looked at him and said, wait a minute, we never saw you. We never saw you hungry and fed you. We never saw you naked and clothed you. We never saw you in prison and visited you. We never did it. And what did Jesus say? When you've done this, to the least of these, you've done it for me. What Jesus is chastising them for is chastising her. I also think there is something in this about, well, we'll act like we want to help the poor, but what we really are is just greedy. More about that in just a moment. And what is the promise that is given? The promise that is given is that whenever what Jesus has done is remembered, she will be part of that story. And guess what? She is. We just read it. She is part of that story. And then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, just so you're not confused who he is, one of the twelve went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought, sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas leaves this meeting. 
And he goes and he finds the priest and say, what is it worth to you for me to hand him over? And here we have one of the great speculations of history. Why did Judas do this? There are those who believe that because Judas was probably in charge of the purse of the group, that he had a great sense of the importance of money. And when he saw this 300 denarii being wasted, it really ticked him off. There is the possibility that he's beginning to understand that Jesus is talking about his death yet again. This whole thing is going to fall apart, and maybe it's time to cut your losses and see what money you can get out of it. Maybe that's what he was doing. There's another discussion that has actually been popular in recent years that he was really doing this for the good of the kingdom. You know, here Jesus is kind of on the periphery and Judas is going to force Jesus to stand up and take command. Because when the Roman soldiers come to grab him, Jesus is going to have to declare that he is the king, call his armies, and take over. So he's trying to force Jesus to act. I think that's being too kind to Judas. There is the speculation that he's demon-possessed. Okay? There's actually going to be a, a discussion in probably next week's lesson about the fact that the betrayal has to happen. It's going to happen. But woe to the person by whom it happens. Judas is a free will creature and could have walked away from this in the same way that I am convinced that after the death and resurrection, if Judas had come to Jesus and repented, Jesus would have forgiven him. We don't know because it didn't happen. Judas is being used by God. Judas is being used by the devil. Judas is being used by the religious leader. Judas is being used. And he is allowing it to happen. There is no one at this point in time responsible other than Judas. And Judas went and said, what will you give me to turn him over? Because Judas is going to be able to tell them where he is in the middle of the night, in the dark, in a group of guys, and he's going to be say, able to say, that's the one, and that's all they need. Jumping ahead a little bit. The leadership is scared of the crowd. Jesus is going to have a trial. In fact, he's going to have a couple of them. By any Roman or Jewish standard, that trial is going to be a mockery because it's going to be done in the middle of the night. It's going to be done hidden away from where the people can see it. It's going to be done in such a way that they can get the answer they want, and the answer they want is to kill him. More about that to come. 
And on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Just to remind ourselves, what is the Passover? The nation of Israel was in bondage in Egypt. Moses comes and says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, heck no. God begins to demonstrate his power through a series of plagues and pestilence. And sometimes Pharaoh finally says yes, and then he changes his mind. Sometimes he just starts out with no. And eventually, there's the final plague, which is the death of the firstborn of every family. Except those families that have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the house. In which case, the death angel, the angel of death, will pass over those homes. And God tells Moses to tell the people, for all time, you are going to remember this. Every year, you are going to celebrate Passover. You are going to remember what God has done for you by delivering you from your oppressors. So, the disciples are very aware. It's time for the Passover. Where are we going to do it? And he, Jesus, sent two of his disciples and said to him, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready there, prepare for us. This is actually kind of miraculous. You remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem and he told the disciples, go find a donkey, untie it and bring it. And if anybody asks, just say the master needs it. Some commentaries actually speculate that Jesus knew the owner of the donkey. So when they were, he was told, ah, the master needs it, it was like, okay, whatever. Every room in Jerusalem is booked at this time. Every male, every good Jew from all over the known world is supposed to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. And they're walking down the street and they follow some random guy with a bucket of water and they come to a random house and the master says, sure, come on in. Did he just have a cancellation? I don't know. There actually is something miraculous going on in this story. And the disciples set out, went to the city, found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, just in case you ever think in this story that Jesus is not in control of the story, this should tell you this, okay? Jesus is not being used by anybody. He is not a pawn on somebody else's chess set. Jesus knows what's going to happen. 
And Jesus is going to follow this path step by step for you and for me. They began to be sorrowful and said to one another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is the one of the twelve who was, who will, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. And the Son of Man goes as it is written to, of him. But woe to him. Ah, here's the verse. But woe to that man for whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, you're going to do what you're going to do. What you're going to do is part of God's plan. But it is not going to turn out well for you, Judas. We have, we could have, an interesting discussion here of the sovereignty of God and the way God works within the lives of people and how that interacts with free will and all of that. We could have that discussion, and we could have that discussion next week and the next week, because people have been having that discussion for thousands of years. Was Pharaoh capable of doing other than what he did? I would contend he could have. Was Pharaoh used by God? Most certainly. Was Judas used by God? Most certainly. But it is not going to turn out well for Judas. And as they were eating, he took bread. And I might add, some of the other Gospels lead you to believe that Judas has left at this point. Okay? Mark doesn't really tell us that. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is what we, me growing up a good Baptist, call the Lord's Supper. Okay, or communion. I'm going to let myself get sidetracked for just a little bit of time. Uh, primarily because, well, for several reasons. Uh, I told you that about three weeks ago, I went on a um, silent retreat for four days. And it is a Catholic silent retreat. So each of the four days that I was there, they celebrated Mass, which is the Lord's Supper, sort of. And I'd like to spend just a few moments, because we haven't actually done this in a while, telling you what we believe about the Lord's Supper, and to do that, to contrast it with what other groups of people believe. If you are a good Catholic, you go to Mass and you receive the bread. But if you are a good Catholic, when you receive this, this is not bread. You go, wait a minute, it looks like bread. 
when I put it in my mouth, it tastes like bread. No. What did Jesus just say? This is my body. And the good Catholic will tell you, this is the body of Christ. Well, how can that be? It looks like bread. It tastes like bread. I bought it at the store as bread or cracker. How can that be? In order to understand that, you need to understand a little bit of Plato's philosophy. Okay? We'll get back to the piece of bread. What are you sitting in? A chair. Why is that a chair? Well, because it is a chair, right? But you know what? Up here I have another chair. What is this? It's a chair. Does it look like the chair you're sitting in? No. It's made out of different material. It's probably not nearly as comfortable, probably not nearly as sturdy, but it still shares something with that thing you're sitting in. Plato would say that is, you're going to love this word, chairness. That and that share something called chairness. Now, Plato would say somewhere out there, somewhere, is the chair that is the essence of chairness. We're not going there for right now. Okay? The essence of this is that it is a chair. It shares chairness in the same way that the chair you're sitting in shares chairness. But this one is black, dark blue, black. The one you're sitting in is not. This one has plastic. The one you're sitting in doesn't. This one, so it's a different color. It's a different size. It's a different shape. But we all know, right, that doesn't prevent it from being a chair. So philosophically, what we say is the color is an accident. Not accident as in, you know, it fell out of the factory and just happened to be black. But an accident as in the color in no way affects the essence of its chairness. So you have the essence and you have the accidents. You just now understood all of Plato's philosophy. Not really. Don't quote me on that. Okay? You understand, right? Essence, accidents. The priest takes the piece of bread and goes through the blessing. And in the miracle of the Mass, this becomes the body of Christ. Its essence changes from breadness to Christness. While the accidents of bread stay there. It happens to taste like bread. It happens to look like bread. It happens to feel like bread. But that is all apart from its essence. 
Why do they believe that? Because Jesus just said, this is my body. He did not say, this is a symbol of my body. He said, this is my body. Now, Jesus also said, I am the door. And you don't go looking for a doorknob. We know that he is using symbolic language to demonstrate some point. We understand this to be a symbol of the body of Christ. We participate in communion not to actually consume the body of Christ, but to remember what Christ has done for us. Now, I might add, the Catholics, when they're consuming the body of Christ, are a whole lot more solemn sometimes than we are when we're dropping the little piece of wafer and we neglect to remember what Christ has done for us. Jesus says, this is a picture of my body. Every time you take it, remember what I've done for you. The cup is a picture of my blood. But more than that, and here is the big part. Now, let's step aside one moment before we get to the big part. The Protestant Reformation started, and most of the Protestants said, you know, this uh, changing this into the body of Christ is kind of a hooey. Okay? You do know right that that's where we get the word hocus pocus from. If you look at the Latin word phrases that the priest is saying, it is hocus pocus. Just saying. Most of the reformers said, no, this is not the body of Christ. But Martin Luther could not go that far. He sat there and he pounded on the table, this is my body. But the Lutherans today take a different stance. The thing that the Catholics believe is known as transubstantiation. It changes to the body of Christ. Lutherans believe in what is known as consubstantiation. The body of Christ is present with the bread. The bread doesn't change to the body of Christ, but the body of Christ is present with. So you see the difference. Once again, we believe it is a symbol. Now, let's back up and figure out what Jesus was doing when he took this bread and took this cup. They were engaged in the Passover meal. What was the Passover meal? The Passover meal was a reminder. It was a picture given to them to remember the deliverance that they had received from, by God, delivering them from the Egyptians. The whole meal that every good Jew participates in every year is to remind them to remember. And Jesus says, 
forget the Passover. He didn't say forget the Passover. This is my blood of the covenant. And what we will see in, say, Corinthians is his discussion of the new covenant. The old covenant, the old relationship that started with Abraham and came about because of God's deliverance was remembered through the Passover. Remember how God delivered you. The new covenant is based not on the blood of lambs on doorposts and the death angel passing over. The new covenant has its center on the finished work of Jesus Christ. We can remember Passover, but I don't celebrate that at my house. Okay? Our church, usually, oftentimes, will have the Passover meal just so we hear, just so they can talk through the symbols and what it means. And it's an educational opportunity. But we're not remembering the Old Covenant. But every time we participate in the Lord's Supper, communion, we are remembering. We are reminding ourselves that Christ's body was broken, that Christ's blood was shared so that we could have salvation, so that we could be delivered. Now, why do we care what the Catholic Church believes, or the Lutherans for that matter? I mean, it's a good, interesting to me observation why you would think this was the body. Of, I mean, it's interesting, but why should we care? Well, we're in lockdown a couple of years ago, and uh, uh, we're doing taped sermons, and Cody is preaching to an empty crowd, which empty audience, which I might add is a very bizarre thing to do. Uh, and he says, he says this, go to your pantry and get a cracker. Go get a juice, and we're going to take communion. Why? Because we are going to remember what Christ's done. But no Catholic priest is ever going to tell you to do that because you can't go to the pantry and get a cracker and turn that cracker into the body of Christ. Only a priest can do that. Guess what you are? Guess what I am? We are a nation of priests. You do not need, and I might add, the priest that gave the talks at our, our, my retreat, he did a great job, okay? He had nice things to say, remember this. I mean, okay? But you don't need a priest to turn this into that so you can remember what Christ has done for you. If you're not remembering, it's no priest's fault. It's your fault for taking for granted what Christ has done for us. That's our problem today. 
And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take this, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new, the word new is not there, blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. My blood is going to deliver you in a similar fashion to the blood on the doorpost delivering the Israelites in captivity in Egypt. Truly I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This little dinner in this room is not just a little dinner in a room. It's not just a reminder of what God has done, although that's what it started at. In the end, it's Jesus telling his disciples that everything is changing. Everything is going to be different. Now, once again, they don't understand this, but in a couple of days they will. They will understand why his body is broken. They will understand why his blood is spilled. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the new covenant. I pray, Lord, that we would remember what you have done for us and that we would remember that salvation is from you and not from us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.